when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, it's Thanksgiving, and we've got a diverse array of guests around our table. Here to talk about his biennial budgeting reform proposal, we have Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble. And giving us a lesson on how to get along with everyone at every holiday meal this season is the host of the Brouhaha podcast, our pal, Anna Marie Cox. Meanwhile, Black Friday. Do you remember when Black Friday used to not start on Thanksgiving Day? We will talk about the backlash that's beginning to brew behind the retail industry's most evil invention. Finally, it's becoming more and more clear that Donald Trump intends to make angry, racist lying the centerpiece of his campaign. But now a group of Republicans have ordered the Code Red, forming one of those shady dark money organizations just to stop Trump. But what if RNC Chair Ryan Priebus's worst fear is realized and the Donald runs as a third-party candidate? I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Dave Jameson. So here's what happened first. Hello, and happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Uh, I don't normally, what am I saying? I don't normally, I always break the time wall in the show. So <laughs> by the time you're hearing this, you've finished Thanksgiving. Oh, no, I, I am in the in, tent in I the am studio in, by myself. I am in New Jersey right now. I don't know where Arthur is. Uh, I'm nowhere. Angry. I'm at home. I'm just at home. I'm reading sci-fi books it's right a, now. It's a Thanksgiving show that happened. Your podcast about things that happen on Thanksgiving, and it's going to be a great one. We have guests galore on this podcast, each one of whom is a returning guest. That's right. Congressman Reed Ribble. Yes. Blogger, writer, podcaster, Anna Marie Cox. Very excited to have her on the show. It's so nice. We have a, quite a good Thanksgiving table. A lot of good people. I think it's great we're bringing people together. And, and Anna Marie is going to specifically help us tell you how to bring people together on Thanksgiving. But first of all, we're going to talk about somebody who's bringing, I guess, together the ideas of, of lying and racism and <laughs> golf courses. Wow. <laughs> you'll never guess who it is. Yeah, you'll never guess who it is. It's the Republican Party's problem. <laughs> Donald Trump. Did we record this four months ago? I know. <laughs> I know you're going to say evergreen, hashtag evergreen tweets. Evergreen trash tag. <laughs> That's right. How it's, apropos. It's Donald Trump, it's a trash tag. Got so much trash from um, Thanksgiving. Things have gotten really bad between Donald Trump and America. Lately, he's been saying, uh, well, not definitively saying, but also not walking back the idea that we should have a uh, way of tracking Muslims in the country. Uh, he claims that he saw thousands and thousands of Muslims in Jersey City, where I am I am very close to Jersey City right now, right this very minute. No, uh, uh, only sort of. He saw thousands and thousands of Muslims from Jersey City on television 
on September 11th cheering the fall of the World Trade Center, which, by the way, is a claim that not even Chris Christie, the governor of that state, will definitively say, no, nah, that didn't happen. He's just kind of like shrug. Well, you know, it might have happened. Might have happened. I don't know. I, I didn't see I it. I can't be everywhere. Yeah. Gutless by Chris yep. Christie because it's a flaming lie. This tape does not, ex- not did, Horrific did not racism exist. also. It's just flaming racism. Yeah, absolutely. Completely uncontrolled. It is like... It is like Donald Trump set a dumpster fire in American politics four months ago, and this past week he's just been pouring gasoline on it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the Washington Post interviewed some people who study brains and the way humans use their brains and said, (laughs) well, maybe he's not lying. You could be a little more charitable and say he's misremembered this and he thinks it's true. But no, he has been confronted (laughs) with the truth on this and he keeps saying it. He's lying. He's an asshole. And it's sort of an embarrassment that we have an industry of fact checkers that jokes around sometimes with, you know, pants on fire, Pinocchios, and they can't bring themselves to say he's lying. Oh, they say I've, it's a misstatement. It's not true. CNN, the, uh, the, the, the cable news equivalent of getting your head caught in the honey jar, uh, had a Chiron. People put their heads in jars of honey? Winnie the Pooh did. <laughs> yeah, come on, A.A. milled me. A. Sorry, Milner sorry, shit. I'm uh, I'm stuck in adult land here. Right. Oh, oh. <laughs> my mistake. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, you'll read that shit to your kids when you have dumb kids, like I'm not going to have. But um, uh, CNN had a chyron that said, "Does Donald Trump transcend the truth?" And I was like, "Wow, you guys are really coming up with like multi-syllable ways to avoid just saying he's a fucking liar and well, a racist liar." Let's be clear; he's yeah, not yeah, lying about about how great Muslim people are. He's not lying about how he's not overstating how wonderful Islam is a religion. He is just lying to say nasty things and spread nasty thoughts about about Muslim people and then also about black people. He has that great tweet that came out this week where he just completely misrep. It's just made up crap. Well, now he uh, he he retweeted something and everyone knows retweets are endorsements and it was a uh, a chart full of made up statistics to portray black people as murderers. Yeah. As the killers of every race. Yeah. Like over 80 percent of, of white people, which is just false. Over 80% of, of <laughs> white people who are murdered are murdered by other white so, people. It also claimed that it was from the, like, the San Francisco Bureau of Crime Statistics, which is not even a thing. No. And the guy who made it turned out to be a neo-Nazi or something. With yeah. a swastika yeah. for yeah. his Twitter avatar. So, so that's what Donald Trump has been up to. Yeah, yeah. Still, the, pretty, still the front runner. We do, still the freaking we, front runner. We do have to say something nice about Ben Carson, who, who briefly said, oh, yeah, he, he, oh, he, with his eyes closing, oh, yeah, I saw, oh, yeah, I saw it on I the I saw newsreels. the Muslims cheering. It was the newsreels. And then he no, actually, where did you see that? He actually walked back and said, "Oh, sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to say. I said uh, I didn't remember that." Well, I'm, no, ben so Carson, he, he I'm Ben Carson, famous neurosurgeon somehow. <laughs> but we have to be nice to Ben Carson because he did one nice thing in his life. But he also does this with every single public policy issue. What's your tax plan? A ten percent flat tax, or maybe it's. Maybe it's more like fifteen. All right, well, maybe it's progressive. I, I just here. You know. Here's the thing. Ever since the week we saw that crazy New York Times story, uh, which we learned that Ben Carson's own campaign think he's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Only about foreign policy. They didn't say he was an idiot about tax policy. He's sort of fallen off, and Ted Cruz has kind of taken his pr- place. But Donald Trump remains the front runner, and uh, probably 
uh, has turned the tide of a slight decline that was going on post CNBC debate. Here's what's happening now. What's happening now is uh, Liz Mayer, former digital communications director of the RNC and one time advisor to Scott Walker before she said a bunch of true things about how stupid it is that Iowa gets to have the first caucus every fucking time. Uh, she is now uh, running one of those uh, crazy dark money organizations called Trump Card LLC in which she has vowed to basically take take the lid off of hell and stop not just stop Donald Trump, but to humiliate him so badly that the people who currently support him won't even vote in November. That is what, or vote in the primary. That is what she has said she intends to do. And she says she intends to do it in the most surreal and bizarre ways possible. This well, here's the thing to remember. The money, though. Here's the thing to remember to get the about money. Donald Trump. Yeah, this is her pitch for yeah. money. It doesn't, no TV ads have been aired yet. In fact, before this week, there has there even been a single TV ad against Trump by other Republicans. John Kasich did finally Kasich one. Kasich did one this week, and people were like, well, this is just stuff that Republicans like about it. It was like a video of Trump's statement. I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. But what but, are you going to... Yeah, that's, I mean, that shows, the, that shows the kind of limitations that the, the Republican candidates actually see themselves under. But they're still following that 11th commandment where they have to, like, not go hard as a motherfucker at Trump, where Liz Mayer, in theory, if she gets the money behind her and the people behind her, could do something radically different. I don't know. The campaigns have been slinging Trump mud. It doesn't look that way because they're slinging it to the media and letting the they're media... They're slinging it very conventionally is what I'm saying. But there ha- there still hasn't been a, a, a direct attack by other Republicans. No, I suppose not. And I wonder at the end of this if, like, if Liz Mayer actually succeeds and demonstrates that she's the one in the Republican Party with backbone if she can't just be the nominee. But uh, I'll tell you... I'll tell <laughs> so, you so you just want Liz Mayer to run for president? I do. Liz, 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 Mayer, Liz Mayer is a good friend of mine, and I would love her to be the Republican candidate for president. Okay? There, I said it. Um, endorsed. Sorry, Liz. <laughs> Everything's going to hell now for Liz because some loser liberal from the Huffington Post just endorsed her. I'm also going to help Wright's Priebus out, which is also not going to help Wright's Priebus out. But one of the <laughs> one of the things one of the things that that Liz Mayer's intervention here or her threatened intervention here has done is has gotten Donald Trump's attention, and now Donald Trump's saying, "Hey, hey, hey! A long time ago, we took pledges about not running as a third party candidate." And I said I wouldn't as long as I was treated fairly. Now I'm not being treated fairly. So he's once again put out the yeah, threat. Breach of contract, <laughs> which is like something he's really good at. And something he brags about doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's put out there. He'll run as a third party. He'll still run as independent. So right now, if you're, if you're Reince Priebus, you're weighing different kinds of risk. The risk of what if Donald Trump ends up being the nominee for president of my party what if Donald Trump ends up being so bad a candidate that he wrecks the chances of our eventual nominee? And what if Donald Trump runs as a third party and takes enough votes away from us that we lose to Hillary Clinton? I think he's got to weigh the idea of, is it better for the Republican Party to win the presidency by any means necessary, or is it better for the Republican Party to long-term fully disassociate itself from the kind of stuff Donald Trump's been doing. I mean, the problem that he has is that the Republican Party 
can't fully disassociate itself from the stuff that Trump has been doing because a large section of the Republican Party and its voting base really likes the stuff that Trump has been doing and has wished the Republicans would say this sort of thing more often. They believe that most Republican candidates believe somewhere in their heart of hearts a lot of stuff like what Donald Trump has been saying, but they just tiptoe around it and they're too politically correct when they when they deal with Democrats on Capitol Hill. And that's why none of these conservative priorities ever get established. Uh, but they don't. I don't know, Zach. Wait till they find out that Donald Trump is a birther who says vaccines cause autism. <laughs> Surely that will sink him. Don't. It's been going on for four months. Other, the, reason, uh, the reason that he's staying on top of the polls is because Republicans like him. The right previous like also stuff. has a ton of candidates under his wing that don't call for people at rallies to be roughed up. Yes. That don't that, that don't fuck with the hallowed mythology of 9-11. By saying that there are people in Jersey City cheering for it. He has a bunch of candidates who don't do that stuff. Yes, but his base likes that stuff. And th- those candidates are having trouble because they're not as good at appealing to so Republican you think, voters. You think that Marco Rubio, the thing he should do right now, is say, oh, yeah, I totally saw that videotape of Muslims cheering uh, in Jersey City. No, I'm saying that the Republican Party and the people who are running against Trump are screwed because with this many candidates in the, in the race— there are more Republicans who are into Donald Trump than are into everybody else. That's well, why he's the well, frontrunner and why he's in, up in the well, polls. He's the frontrunner, yeah, but keep in mind what he's got is a plurality of the Republican primary electorate. Yes. So it's a slice of a slice. I don't of, think he's a, I don't there. think he's a terribly viable general election candidate, but I will say the total madness that gripped cable news and the country at large about Syrian refugees after the Paris terror attacks, suggests to me that Trump's appeal with voters is broader than we would have otherwise thought. His instincts to go nasty and nativist are shared by a significant portion of the American people. Perhaps so. I would say to Ryan's Priebus that the, I would say to him, the threat of Donald Trump running as a third party candidate is non-existent. I literally do not believe that Trump has the kind of money to do it. I think what money he has, he's not as liquid as he claims to be. I think that he would definitely waver at running a third-party candidacy. And if I were Reince Priebus, I'd call the bluff. But you see, now you're stuck, Reince, because if you actually take my advice and it goes south, everyone's going to say, why did you listen to that liberal dick from the Huffington Post and that'll be the end of your career. So I guess I guess life is paid for Rice Priebus and the rest of us. I agree. He won't he wouldn't do it really. Yeah, I think would you do you think he would run a third party? I don't candidacy? think he would do it. And I I think I think Priebus is is uh, fooling himself if he thinks that he can he can play nice with Trump and, and, and have any type of decent outcome. I think you, they've been trying this for four months and it's not working. So I think it's it's time to play hardball. All right. Like friends, Ryan's we're saying call is bluff. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Now tuned to Ribble Me This with Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble. We're back. I'm Arthur Delaney, joined by Jason Lincolns, and Hello. we're here to talk about Congress, which is supposed to do a budget every year, but instead of following its formal budget process, it often just lurches from one near shutdown drama to another, and lawmakers enact short-term continuing resolutions while actual budget deals are hammered out in secret and at the last second. Would changing the formal process to every two years instead of every one help Congress do better? Representative Reed Ribble of Wisconsin thinks so. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's good to be with you, Arthur. Thank you. So tell us why biennial budgeting is better. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's not just me that thinks this. It's uh, roughly 230 of my House colleagues that believe this, and uh, uh, nearly 70% of the United States Senate believes it. Since, since 1974, if, uh, when the last budget, main budget reform was done in, in uh, Congress, 80% of election years there are no budgets at all. Congress just ignores them. Obviously, uh, voting on a budget is one of the toughest votes that any member of Congress takes because budgeting is really a, a value statement. And so um, what happens is in election years, Congress has a tendency to shy away from their responsibility, shirk it actually, and not vote on, not vote on in election years. And uh, the way you fix that 
is by voting for the budget for the entire Congress, and our Congress sessions are two years long, you vote for a two-year budget in the first year that you're here. And uh, by doing that, you're more likely to ha- actually have a budget. So but that it makes perfect sense to me. If you've already got majority support in both chambers, what's the holdup? Well, the, the holdup is status quo, mostly. Uh, you have uh, some committee chairmen who are very powerful that um, they don't want to give up any type of hold on power. Um, I've been arguing that it's a power that's gone unexercised, and so um, we need to actually have this uh, firm talk with each other. Uh, in uh, my conversations with the majority leader and uh, Speaker Ryan, and by the way, Speaker Ryan voted for this exact same legislation last year, um, they're, they're ready to uh, try to work out some of the differences and some of the concerns that the committee chairman have on the actual language. I'm willing to try to negotiate um, to get this uh, idea advanced. And so I'm hoping to get a vote on this uh, before the end of this calendar year. Let me take it a, a few steps back. One of the most vital debates between Republicans and Democrats is over the size of government and the trajectory of governments. Yeah. Literally, how are we going to sail the ship of state? I can see how biennial budgeting can keep waters calm during times of divided government. I can understand why uh, you'd want to remove budgeting this process from the the electoral calendar as well. But what about when one party controls all the levers? You know, I imagine that your party aspires to one day control all the levers. Surely at that kind of moment, you'd want a better control of the budget process to really put your stamp on our long-term budget trajectory. Wouldn't two-year budgeting inhibit that? No, it wouldn't inhibit it. You're just admitting the realities of it. I mean, uh, Congress is two years long, so if there's a, if there's a single party in control of the, both the Congress and the executive branch, uh, you're going to get a, a, an agreement more quickly on the actual number. But I don't think it changes the trajectory at all because the, the, the second year in that scenario would be identical to the first year. The only, only thing you would see different is that those folks inside the federal agencies that must be responsible for purchasing and sourcing of goods and services for the federal government, uh, they would lose, in your scenario, they would lose some of that certainty because they, they don't know what happens in year two, whereas in this case they can actually begin to do bulk purchasing and shop over a two-year time, which would help drive costs down. And so um, I don't think the, the trajectory of it changes much whether it's a single-party control or, or, do, or uh, bipartisan um, act, action like we've had the last couple of years. So to help listeners understand, essentially agencies could make one huge trip to Costco at the beginning of, of the two-year period instead of having to just run to the corner store for every continuing resolution? Sure, exactly. And, and this is really it's very important for our national defense. When you're procuring very expensive items like the littoral combat ships that are are constructed in my congressional district, uh, having some certainty on on that type of large purchase uh, allows those purchasing agents to drive the cost down. The other thing that uh, helps from a financial standpoint is if you look at federal spending over 52 weeks, the last five weeks of the year accounts for 19% of all federal spending, and federal spending jumps by about $22 billion in the last week alone as federal agencies uh, have a mass uh, spending spree as they try to spend down their budgets. Uh, you would cut that in half. You still would have an end of a budget, but it would only happen once every two years rather than, than once every year. So there's about $20 billion of savings built into this as you move forward. So 20 states, uh, this is something you, you and other proponents of biennial budgeting like to say, 
Congressman Reed Ribble that uh, about 20 states do this, but it used to be almost all the states and they've been going away from biennial budgeting. What is, is that still an argument in favor of it or is it becoming actually obsolete at the same time? Well, what, what's happened at the state level is that uh, states have also been changing their legislative calendars. Some states have gone to full-time, uh, other states have gone to part-time, and a- as you take a look at as states have moved toward biennial or away from biennial, it usually has more to do with their legislative calendar than it does to the actual event of the biennial budget system or not. And so um, I come from a biennial budget state in Wisconsin, and uh, it's certainly been, uh, it certainly works there and has worked there for, for a very long time. What if you lock in it to your budget uh, on a Wednesday and then on Friday, giant recession happens? Is there a stopgap uh, to, to help with that kind of crisis? Sure, exa- there is. Um, just like we have right now, let's say that we, we have an annual budget and then another hur- Hurricane Katrina kicks in. That's a great example, you still, too. Yeah. You, still have to, you still have to adjust for it. And, and in biennial, you would have the ability to do that as well. You would also have the ability to uh, allow um, certain amounts of reprogramming of dollars and also the ability to rescind if you needed to pull spending back from one place. And so the, the things that we, are, we do today in an annual budget would continue to be done in a biennial budget as well. One of the top arguments in favor of biennial budgeting, uh, Congressman Reed Ribble, is that it would reduce the congressional workload. But a lot of the standoffs we've had and, and near shutdowns aren't caused by too much work. It's, it's because people just don't agree on the Hill. Does, does this process, a two-year budget, actually make people more agreeable? Well, it's not going to make people more agreeable. But in this time of uh, difficult partisanship that we have in Congress right now, the two budget agreements that we've had since I've been in Congress, and I've been in Congress for five years, were the Ryan Murray Agreement, which was a negotiated biennial agreement, and then the Boehner-Obama Agreement, which was approved by the Congress just a week ago. That was also a biennial agreement. And so when, when the, the, uh, the leadership gets involved in this, they always pivot toward a two-year agreement. And so they themselves are saying that the system we have right now doesn't work, and because it doesn't work, let's do it this way. And all they're doing is endorsing, in my opinion, the, the idea that I've had since I've come here. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. We, we are kind of de facto living in the world you want to create. And one of the things we talked about last week when we were sorting out the, the handover process was that the two-year budget deal was good for Boehner. It was good for Paul Ryan because it means he's going to lead the House in relatively still waters. Frankly, it's good for Barack Obama. It's not going to be a crisis that lands on his desk every year. But I wonder if you've given any thought to the dedicated party hacks who like to exploit the fact that there's dysfunction every once in a while to spin political messages. I mean, what, are you, what about those people? You've kind of left them bereft, haven't you? I, I did, and I really don't care much about them. <laughs> oh, you no. know, we, we have, a too, we have too much of that what? going on right what? now. I mean, just look at the congressional calendar in both the Senate and House side, whether, whether it was Harry Reid in charge or John Boehner in charge or Mitch McConnell in charge. The Congress has a tendency to get drift off into messaging bills rather than problem-solving bills. That's true. And, and I, I, for one, uh, I came to Congress because I was, as a business guy, I was fed up with that, and I'm, I'm equally fed up with it now that I'm here. 
uh, I wish we'd just get down to doing the business of the American people and stop trying to tell them things. If I've got something to say, I'll say it in my political campaigns. I don't need to say it in a piece of legislation. Fair play, but fair but seriously, Congressman, last question. If, uh, if, if Car- doesn't this reduce congressional oversight? Don't, don't no, you it actually enhances to- congressional oversight. Because what happens now, we spend all of our summers doing nothing but appropriations bills. What this would do is you'd get your budget and appropriation bills done in year one, and in year two you're able to actually do those committee hearings whereby you can, you can actually do true oversight on how the agencies are managing the money that you've appropriated to them. This opens up time to do oversight, doesn't take it away. All right, Congressman Reed Ribble, thanks so much for joining us. That's yeah, good to be with you, Arthur. Thank you. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Jason Lincolns with Zach Carter. Hello. And joining us now is one of our favorite people in the world. My good friend, Anna Marie Cox. Hi, guys. Of the St. Paul Marie Coxes. I actually live in Minneapolis now. But oh, that's okay. right. That's right. I totally forgot about that. Is, is, is that something that you, you feel like kind of embarrassed about or proud about? You, you seem very sensitive on that one. Well, you know what? I think people who live in the Twin Cities like to remind people that they're twins. Mm. You know, like you don't refer to if someone is a twin, you don't just refer to them both people just generically as, as you know <laughs> when you refer to one person you're not necessarily you know refer to bob you're not also refer you know referring to like joe when you talk about the replacements you're not automatically talking about who's do even though everybody kind of knows that you are well <laughs> something like that when i lived in st paul i care that people knew it was st paul when i lived in, i live in minneapolis you know it, it, there is a whole river like between the, between them so um, it matters. I'm sure this is all fascinating to everyone. No, well, this is actually quite important because the holidays are coming up and we're going to be meeting with our families. And it's a, also a hot time in politics. So the question literally is, are we going to have a river between us? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Or are we going to find a way to be more Minnesota nice to each other? Oh, while God. we're stuffing our faces at, say, Thanksgiving. And so yeah. Anna Marie here is here to talk about this age-old topic. We were actually talking about what an age-old topic it is, to talk about the topic of talking about topics. I mean, I literally talk about this with people every single year. So, yeah. so like, what? How, how do you get through it, Anna Marie? Right. Okay, so full disclosure, um, which is that I married into a family of, at the very least, you could say they are not progressive, mm. right? Yes. Um, 
uh, my husband's sort of, you know, social, liberal, fiscal, conservative kind of guy. Um, but I've met a lot of them. They're really fun. No, Jason. They're, they're super fun. They are some of the kindest, sweetest, most generous people I know. Um, but, you know, they watch a lot of Fox News. Uh, and we have differences of opinion on things, you know? So and, how, I mean, so what do you do? I mean, you're sitting at the table, and I mean, you you are a political-ish journalist. I mean, it's not everything you do is explicitly political, but you have a lot of politics stuff going on. How do you do you avoid these these subject topics of conversation, or or are there are there ways that you found to navigate these topics? Well, it, you know, I think an age-old solution. Speaking of age-old things, is is to just avoid them, and that is a, I endorse that. You know, like I endorse for everyone avoiding the topics that are going to get you in trouble. It is the like, Protestant that is way. Not a bad thing to do. We, as a country, <laughs> we have done that for a long time. Yeah. Just avoided talking about problematic things. Um, but this is something I think about a lot. I have a segment on my podcast called "Some of My Best Friends," and in it, the whole that's the point of the segment <laughs> is to talk about people who you just what the relationships you have with people you disagree with. And how do you navigate those? And I think something that I've I've come to see as a through line for a lot of people who come on the show and talk about it is empathy. Um, is the ability to, when you are having a discussion with someone who you disagree with, to not automatically assume bad motivations and bad intent, you know, mm-hmm. on their part. And to not make blanket assertions about the character of, of their being, you know. I feel like this gets uh, very difficult, though, particularly when when subjects include things that that seem like like basic sort of civil rights, for instance. I mean, when when gay marriage or immigration comes up in 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 my household, whatever position that you take on that is seen as a as a uh, an indicator of of your sort of core character. Like if you if you answer the same sex marriage question wrong, that means that you are a bad person by definition. Um, it just seems like a very hard, uh, like like it just seems like it's easy for people to lose sight of that in w- when those are the, the types of questions. Well, I think what I would do is that you know if if we're talking about like actual practical advice for people like sitting around the Thanksgiving table, um, besides. The advice to avoid the topic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you drop, like drop the drop the cranberry sauce, you know, <laughs> in your lap. <laughs> you, you can just like that's always a good worst case scenario. Dodge, by the way, is spill something. Like, just, if they, if your parents insist on talking about gay marriage, spill something. My um, God, the turkeys come back to life. <laughs> <laughs> but barring that, let's set say, off a fire alarm. Right, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. so. It's the rhetorical version of the fire alarm, setting off a fire alarm. Um, but barring that, I think this is something that I, I get, and you guys probably also have a little bit of a leg up on it, on your standard. You know, somebody who who doesn't do this for a living, that it helps so much to have facts on hand. Um, if you're talking about immigration, for instance, which is an issue that actually um, my in-laws and I disagree about. Um, you know, uh, I have pointed out to them that, for instance, Obama has deported more more illegal immigrants than any other president in history. Are they aware of that? Yeah. You know, um, and to keep it not as non sarcastic as possible, and to actually like ask if they if they know you know are is it here's a fact that seems to be a part of what your assumptions are. You know, did you are you aware of it? 
Um, I was actually talking to a friend of mine on the subject uh, who and uh, who whose mother is conservative on the subject of immigration, and her mother works in the catering industry. And she was saying that uh, she builds resentment because she sees um, there's a lot of uh, Latino workers in this industry. Not surprising, I guess. Uh, and uh, she has said unkind things about their work ethic and about what you know they're taking taking advantage of the system. Mm. And my friend, and she said something to my friend about, it, and I see how much money they have. I, they open up their wallet. They, they just, there's just like lots of cash in there. You know, lots of money. They have lots of walking around money. <laughs> and my friend, God bless her, said, "Well, have you thought about the fact that they probably don't have a bank?" Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> so, like, have you? And they get paid in cash. Like, they get paid in cash. They don't have bank accounts. They don't have a really good way to, like, manage their money. They don't have credit cards. And her mother was like, you know, I haven't, I had not thought about that. So, I mean, and the other, and the other flip side of this, if you don't have the facts, it is another kind of good diffusing thing to do to ask where their facts came from. Yeah, sure. It seems to me that there's a, that before you wade into any conversation, it might, it might be a good idea to just, Try to figure out if the conversation is is inspired by uh, someone's genuine interest or a genuine personal story, uh, or be, because you know, for example, there are plenty of people who have had problems getting getting care through Obamacare. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know it's tough. They may have a really negative feeling about Obamacare because they've interacted with it. And, you know, we can all, I think, we, we can all sympathize with someone who's run up against problems with an insurance company. Uh, so a genuine personal story that might be worth for more discussing more versus something that's animated more by the weird emails that Aunt Jean Marie forward, forwarded <laughs> uh, from, from World Net Daily. Uh, it seems to me like in one, if, if we're talking about the one case, uh, really, you know, Treating a family member like a family member in that case, mm-hmm. yeah, by a good move, yeah, and like and be where does their opinion come from? Like, I, I would advise anyone who's listening to this podcast and actually hoping for again, actually hoping for practical advice. Which, hey, <laughs> <laughs> not sure if you came to the right place, but yeah, um, <laughs> I, I think I think surprise people. You know, we're we're steeped in this. We follow politics. We're we 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 uh, we're on Twitter reading about politics. We're aware of the people who are like really roided up about politics, and I find it personally. I can only speak for myself, but I I find it uh, that personally, a lot of times people's political decisions and the things they choose to support are really, really, really animated more by something personal and not something that they were handed in talking point form from a cereal box, right? Or Fox News. Right. Yes. Well, and that is actually, I would say that that is my biggest frustration. Not just when I have discussions with my family, but when I am, you know, get into a discussion with someone who is more conservative than I am. I would say that Fox News is the biggest problem. Is like the biggest barrier to discussion. Mm. You know, the the way that they present information and the misinformation. I, I should say the way they present misinformation. (laughs) <laughs> like, it's, I, you mean, t- I, I have my problems with CNN and MSNBC too, but I feel like there's so many more qualifiers 
at a tip at a, at the other two news stations. You know, like they don't they don't have a world view that is so rigidly enforced. Whereas, like the paranoid delusions of Fox News, like just infect people. And they don't see, and, and I think only Fox seems to see actually actively bullshitting their viewers is something that profits them. Do, do, do you guys remember there was a time when Fox actually used to get really defensive and angry and attack people who argued that Fox was was conservative or in some ways slanted in favor of Republican talking points? And like at some point in the last few years, that just stopped. They yeah, stopped they worrying let it about all that hang completely. out. Yeah, <laughs> it, just, and it's like to me, I'm, put, gra- I'm grateful for it. Little, they put uh, the quote marks around fair and balanced. Right. Exactly. The scare quotes have shifted. The scare quotes always shift. Uh, what do you think, Anna Marie? What are other um, just uh, besides politics? What are your um, what are your uh, uh, other pitfall conversations around the? Uh... <laughs> oh, it's personal. Um, we can speak more generally. Oh, you mean like pitfall conversations around the Thanksgiving table? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that aren't politics. That aren't politics. For me, it is talking with my parents about my retirement. <laughs> it's really funny my my parents my parents are always like you know don't project when you're feeling bad think about whether you're projecting a bad outcome and then all they want to talk about is whether I've adequately funded my 401k and the answer is probably no <laughs> <laughs> you know I don't know if there's a way to talk about that without getting too personal um, uh, I think that it can get awkward um you know, it's just any time. You know, I'm not a total young person, right? So I'm 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 in my early 40s, uh, and I my way of spending my time is pretty set. Mm. You know, like I have my idea of what a good time is and how I like to spend my time, and a lot of it is basically doing the shit that we just talked about. I like, you know, I like reading about politics. Um, I like doing other stuff too, but I'm a I'm a I'm a inside my head kind of person. You know, mm-hmm. like that's fun for me, reading, you know, writing, all of that. And um, I think when families mesh, and in, my, and in my side of the family, my side of the family is a lot of academics um, and a lot of uh, engineers and stuff, a lot of inside your head people too. And it, I've meshed with a family that's not that way, you know, like yeah. sitting quietly and reading is not seen as like <laughs> a, a genuine pursuit. <laughs> You know, like that's what you do when you're in line for groceries. Like that's when you pick up a book, you know, is like at the at the dentist's office, like you pick up a magazine. Um, you might if if the cable goes out, I shouldn't be mean about this, but like it, they're just not, you know, they think you guys are a bunch of nerds. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and to be fair, you guys are a bunch of nerds. <laughs> yes. Yes. To be completely fair, we are a bunch of nerds. Um, but it's sort of interesting to see that in families like to try and have respect for both kinds, both ways of being, you know, because they're totally, I mean, it's not like there's nerds. It's not like, you know, they're, they're not smart, you know, it's, or that they have not legitimate ways of spending their time, but it's just different. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, this definitely happens in my family. My, um, if, if I'm talking to my, 
my dad and I will can just go off on like policy wonk tangents and it will just bore the hell out of my brother. And it's not because my brother is stupid. It's because he really just doesn't want to talk about the intricacies of like oil and gas, yep. you know, uh, uh, shocking incentives, right? You know, it's like a totally reasonable <laughs> thing to not want to talk about. Um, so we have to be careful with that. Like, because even when we don't necessarily disagree on something, we can go off on these, uh, the conversation can take turns that <laughs> completely irritates the hell out of other people in the family. My wife often says that the minute you say the word Goldman Sachs, her body floods with whatever chemical <laughs> anesthetizes the senses. Uh, and, and, and she's like, oh, I don't want to talk about banks again. Blah. She goes right to sleep. I have one more. I have, a, I have another tip. Or okay, what's, tip, what is that? On this, which is that um, the thing that I found to be the great equalizer um, in both terms of like if things get tense about politics or if things get, um, you know, the sort of how the habit of how we spend our time comes into conflict, sports. Oh, yeah. So how about the Mets? Yep. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, I didn't to. realize until I was like a grown-ass adult that that's why people, that's why sports exist. Is, yep. to like make, is to make family functions go more smoothly. Yeah. So, that or make, primate dominance rituals to make us feel better about war. Yeah, that too, probably. But it, it prevents war on a smaller scale yes. by giving us something to talk about and that we can be passionate about without, like, you know, really judging each other. Although I, if someone was a Baylor fan, I don't know. Like, I might have to... <laughs> It is funny, though, the way people do people will c- can care very much about their sports team, but it, it does not feel like a deep moral failure if, if, like, I'm not an Eagles fan, even though my brother loves the freaking Eagles. Like, right. See, that's a, then that's so that's why it's a cool thing. Like, either so if you're stuck in a tough situation, either spill the cranberry sauce or bring up the Mets. Right. That's, that I, is my advice. I feel that this is a good way of getting us through these emotional challenges and giving us some ways out in case it gets too hard. But everyone should try. Everyone should try to connect and relate for the holidays, if only for a few days. Anna Marie, thank you for connecting with us today. Um, thank you guys. And Anna Marie is the host of the Brouhaha podcast on CBS. Which is really good. And you should listen to it all the time. Because sometimes I'm on it. There's no better reason to listen to it, I guess. Um, and Anna Marie, thanks. And I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, you guys too. We're back. We're back with Arthur Delaney. Hey. And joining us is our good friend, Dave Jameson. Gentlemen. Hey, Dave. So we're going to talk about, just to remind people, it's after Thanksgiving. We're already into that <laughs> period of time we call Black Friday. All right. Thank you for consuming our podcast. Thank you for consuming our podcast. Cyber Monday awaits. I don't know what the fuck Cyber Monday means. <laughs> I don't know why we're still using the word cyber. I don't know why you can't shop online on Sunday. Why you have to wait till Monday? <laughs> I don't understand any of these traditions. But Black Friday, Dave, we've watched this become sort of that generic way of saying, hey, retail stores are now in the black. Day after Thanksgiving, good news. To what's really become kind of like a consumer retail like horror show, horror show, people getting trampled, uh, just like the literal doorbusters. Yes, literal doorbusters. Just this debasement 
But uh, there's been now some real pushback among retailers. Yeah, there's been pushback. I don't really think, having talked to people about this who understand what's going on, I don't think it's really doing anything. There are some. It's not doing anything. Well, the pushback isn't. There's obviously there's a lot of people. Last year there were like tons of petitions about stop opening on Thanksgiving. You're ruining Thanksgiving because. Once one retailer does it, and I can't remember whether it was Walmart or Macy's that did it first, then the rest all followed. And so now Thanksgiving is just getting devoured by by retail. But the ones who aren't doing it, it's like Ikea, uh, Barnes & Noble, companies that really— REI, very famous. REI famously, but they all kind of operate a, a little differently. You know, Ikea doesn't have, like, Black Friday-type sales. They don't have sales. They just—they sell you your lack table— and it's $39 whether you buy it on Black Friday. Thank you for digging into the actual Swedish name of the table. So I love Ikea. Yeah. So all these companies that are like, we're, we love our employees. We're not going to destroy Thanksgiving. I think it's great, but I think they're operating under different rules than like if you're Target and you see Walmart start creeping into Thanksgiving, you're going to feel compelled to do it too. But right, well, why do it? Why are companies doing it? It used to be... You unthinkable that you'd go shopping on Thanksgiving because it's literally a few more hours that they can like wring money out of your pocket. It's it's time that's there during the year that traditionally had been had not been used for this. But once one per, once one company was willing to do it, then then the rest just inevitably followed suit. So just because it is literally it is just a few more hours where you can sell crap. So it's literally like law of induction because I've always imagined that a, a human family has a finite amount of money they're going to spend for Christmas. They're going to buy the products they're going to buy based upon needs and wants, available money, and what's on sale. And the time of when it happens doesn't fucking matter, but it does in this case. Well, here, the good news is, I think we're going to start reverting back to, we're going to, like, creep back out of Thanksgiving. What? And it's not because we're doing podcasts talking about how much this sucks. Wait, no, don't give us no credit for this. It's just, it's... (laughs) It's the basic basic economics here are kind of in our favor if you're in, in, all for, like, keeping Thanksgiving sacrosanct here because these companies, like, Black Friday is becoming – it's not just Black Friday or even, even Gray Thursday anymore. It's like this month-long sales thing, right, where especially with the web, now there's, like, you start seeing Black Friday deals, like, in the beginning of November now. It's just kind of bled all over, like, the last couple months of our year. So it's going to get to a point where it doesn't make sense for these companies to really be open on Thanksgiving because it's actually kind of expensive to do that. You, if, you, if you're not going to be an asshole, you're going to pay your workers at least time and a half or double time because they're giving up their, their holiday. And if you're only open for a few hours, you still got to go through all the opening and closing that you normally do. And you're doing it for just a, a much smaller window than any other normal day. So it is actually a pretty expensive proposition to open your store on Thanksgiving. None of these companies are really saying whether it's paying off. And that probably means it probably isn't, you know? The effort to juice post-Thanksgiving Christmas retail is historical. goes way back. The, the president of the United States in the 1930s actually tried to change the date of Thanksgiving just to give Christmas shopping more time because it happened to fall really late that year. It was FDR, and everyone called it Franksgiving and said he was an asshole for trying to do that. So much for the freedom. It's a pendulum that always swings, so it's it's swinging away from Franksgiving (laughs) 
and back toward regular Black Friday. So you think that economics, maybe combined with some popular sentiment, is going to push people out of Black Friday? Yeah, well, I or, think more... Or, more like, we're, we're more talking about, like, the actual Thursday. Yes. The Black Friday on Thursday phenomenon, which is just gross. Yeah, I think just our sh- our basic shopping habits and the way they're changing are going to are gonna change this for us. Where it doesn't make sense for... Eventually, I don't think it'll make sense for brick and mortar to be opening their doors at, at, at 3 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day. You are seeing some commercials now on television where uh, they make fun of Black Friday shoppers. And be like, oh, yeah, I s- save a few hundred bucks by shopping on thanksgiving and another person's like yeah you know i didn't do that <laughs> yeah, i'm sorry great. sorry for shopping at your stores stores god uh, <laughs> it's not like that insult your customer i've seen these ads it's a look at sh- these crazy people it's a little it's a little it's a little but it's, but it's not shaming their customers it's suggesting that our customers are cut above the rest of the riffraff who are camped out in line on thanksgiving now they're trying to move away from you know walmart years ago had had a death on Black Friday. A worker on Long Island got trampled. Right. Um, and uh, he was asphyxiated beneath a crowd. And so what they've part of what they've been doing, and this was a response to, to regulators in part getting up their ass about it, they've like been staggering sales. Uh, you know, they were forced to, to develop a plan for like crowd control basically. I so wonder now, why. Yeah, and so now like, you know, the TV goes on sale at, at you know, 10 p.m. and, and the and – the, you know, the toaster goes on sale at midnight and that sort of thing. Um, but I think that's like indicative of like a broader thing where like I think the door busting thing is like gonna go go away where Black Friday is just this long kind of drawn out thing that it's already becoming where where it's already going on in like mid November basically. You're gonna get any big flat screens this Black Friday? No, I'm gonna go I'm going to Walmart, you know, five PM on Thanksgiving. Definitely. Uh, definitely. I'm gonna get some mud flaps for my truck. Sure. <laughs> you're now just being a coastal elitist dick. That's right. Take that Davidson. flyover country. The, um, the, uh, but, but, but let me ask you: you say that you say that these companies, if they're not assholes, are paying their employees time and a half. It seems to me like most of these companies are assholes. So, is anyone getting time? Well, the uh, important thing about this is it doesn't necessarily. Not every. Not all workers hate this idea, even of the Thanksgiving work. Uh, there's a lot of retail workers need more hours. That's a big problem in retail in general. You, you know, you're only getting 20 hours a week, so you're like, you're literally making nine, ten, eleven bucks an hour, and so you really need more hours. And the idea of time and a half or double time can be really attractive. Well, now you're making me feel bad for not shopping on Thanksgiving. Look, it's to, you know, it's it's going to vary. From, one person's going to like it, another person's going to hate it. What's uncool about it is. Somebody's going to have to do it, and inevitably, people who don't want to do it are going to end up having to do it. It's like it's like covering debate night in this place. You know, <laughs> that is it's, a really yeah, that's a really good uh, that's a really good. That's the coastal elite it. version of working Black Friday. <laughs> that's exactly right. Having to watch a Democratic debate on Saturday. Oh. Okay, well, uh, regardless of how you spent your Thursday, hopefully, it was spent doing something you like or something you got paid to do. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriana Ucero and Peter James Callahan with technical assistance from Christine Canetta and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Boguki. When Slack goes down, Caitlin picks it up. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by the host of the Brew Ha Ha podcast, Anna Marie Cox. 
and Wisconsin Congressman Reed Ribble, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Dave Jameson. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you are there. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, we are so very thankful to all of you for listening. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we miss you already.